And um, so we won't be, Luke is a big book, and there's tons of stuff in there. We could spend the next several years there, and that would be to our prophet. But what I'd like to do is just take a short series where we're looking at the life of Christ, uh, some of the central teaching of Christ, uh, some of uh, what his ministry was about, because uh, we want to be uh, disciples of Christ. Uh, that's really what we are convinced Jesus wants us to be. And he wants us to make disciples. Well, a disciple is someone who follows the leader and knows the leader and patterns his life after the truth that's in, in, in the master. And so we're going to take uh, the next weeks up through, as I said, through Easter, uh, studying the gospel of Luke and studying our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would uh, be able to walk with him and follow him and serve him. We're going to begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 25 as we uh, then begin this morning. Let's give our attention to God's holy and inspired, infallible, dynamic, life-giving word. Let's give our attention to the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So far, the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing on it. Father, now we've opened your word, we've read the things that you've inspired and written there. Thank you, Lord God, that you are revealing to us your character, your purposes, and you're revealing to us, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might believe in him. So, Lord, give us the grace and the ability to believe today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're going to see as we go through the uh, Gospel of Luke, Luke is, uh, his purpose, as he explains it here in the first few verses, is that we would believe, I mean really believe, most of you here this morning would say, if I would ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He's the Son of God? Do you believe that He's the Messiah? You would say, absolutely. And yet, if, uh, if I followed you around for a week, it wouldn't take me long um, to find in your life, in the pattern of your life, in the things that you say, the attitudes of your heart, uh, reasons for me to say, well, wait a minute. Remember I, I asked you, Sunday, if you believed that Jesus was the, the Messiah, the Son of God? And um, that God had loved you in Jesus Christ and that you belonged to, to God the Father. And, and, and you even said that you believed that that Jesus was at the right hand of God orchestrating all the events of your life for His glory and your good. you remember that conversation? You say, yeah. And I say, well, how does this fit with that? Because this is, doesn't look like, right, as, as you're losing your temper here or as you're serving your idol here, as you're anxious and worried here, That doesn't look like believing everything that you said on Sunday. And of course, if you followed me around, uh, we would have the exact same conversation. You would just be doing the talking. So we say we believe, and we mean it when we say we believe. But there are things that happen in our life, and there are patterns that we've established in our life, patterns of unbelief. And we willingly live with these things. And, and the Gospel of Luke is written to help us realize that, that God doesn't want us to willingly live with unbelief. Unbelief is sin against God. Unbelief cripples our own joy. Unbelief um, renders us mute when we ought to be speaking with confident assurance of all the things that God has done, all that He is for us in Jesus Christ. And so, John Luke is writing so that we really know and we believe in a way that alters the way we move through life. I remember as a young kid, um, there was a, uh, we had a pond out back in the fields of ways. It, was a, it wasn't that deep, probably maybe 10 feet deep. But it was deep enough that he didn't want to go through the ice. And so um, early in the, uh, in the season when the ice was newly formed, we'd go out there. My brother and I, we'd want to go play hockey or just skate. And, um, and we didn't know if the ice was safe or not. So um, I sent Daryl out to see if it was all right. <laughs> right. I hate to admit it, but that's actually what I did. Daryl, why don't you go out there? And Daryl had no fear. <clears throat> and... Um, so he'd go out and crack, 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 crack. Yeah, it's fine. But as we were, as we would be skating, right, you'd be skating and, and, and their cracks would appear. And so you'd have to judge, well, is this a, like a fatal crack or is this just part of, uh, you know, the ice settling a little bit? And, and isn't it true that, I mean, let me, let me ask you this. 
what about if you um, had absolute confidence that the ice wasn't going to break? And the reason you had absolute confidence it wasn't going to break is because the ice went all the way to the bottom. That you couldn't break it if you wanted to. If someone dropped a 10-pound truck right on the ice, it would just bounce there. That would change the way you got out on the pond. So often, right, we live our life timidly, and every little crack frightens us. We're not free to enjoy our life. We're not free to skate with abandon, following our Lord, serving our Savior, giving ourselves to other people, because we're afraid. This thing might not hold up. There are circumstances that that we're not quite sure about. See, Luke wants us to plow through that stuff, to realize that the ice goes all the way down. And that we can live with absolute, absolute confidence because the story that he's about to tell us is absolutely true. So he says, others have have been talking about the things that were accomplished among us, and I have examined these things in Theophilus. I'm writing an orderly account so that you may have certainty. I don't want you just to believe, Theophilus. I want you to believe with absolute certainty, infallible certainty, because I'm going to give you infallible truth. It absolutely happened this way. This is not a religious myth. It's not a spiritual lesson wrapped up with some, uh, uh, with some figures that we can identify with it. It's not a parable. It's not a story. These are the actual accounts of God at work in human history through Jesus Christ. And one of, the, one of the great things about this story, one of the reasons you can believe it's absolutely true is because it has the stain of reality all over it. The people that we meet here are people that we recognize. They look like us. They act like us. They surprise us just like people will do. You have here an old man, a learned, godly, righteous high priest who fails to believe the promise of God when an angel is speaking it to him. And then in chapter 2, or later on in chapter 1, you'll find a, a, little young, a young girl, 13, 14 years old, peasant girl from a nowhere town. And when the angel comes to her with the, with the life-shattering implications of that message, what does she say? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. See, it just has the, it has the stuff you couldn't make this up. It has, the, it has the sort of the authenticating mark of reality about it. And, and, the re, and Luke wants to tell the story that way because he wants us to believe it with utter certainty in a way that changes the way we walk through our days, changes the way that we skate through life, so that we can move forward with hope and joy and peace right in the middle of our real lives, our real circumstances. And so let's jump into the story. Note first a godly couple, this wonderful old couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah is a priest. He's a Levite. Uh, She, Elizabeth, also grew up in the home of a priest. She said the house of Aaron. And this is this maybe partly to explain for their exemplary piety, their godliness. We're told that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. doesn't mean they were without sin, but it means that they were serious about their, 
their faith, serious about their obedience, serious about their walk with God. They took His commands and His Word as they had it for them in the Old Testament. They took that seriously. They believed what He said. They loved what He promised. And they lived their life intentionally to serve God. That was their goal in life. And it's a noticeable thing because it it is a low ebb in the spiritual life of the people of, of Israel in general. Nothing is the way it ought to be. Their king is not a David. It's not even someone from David's line. It's Herod. This wicked, he's a Jewish man, but doesn't believe really in any of it. In fact, Herod's going to try to kill Jewish babies in an effort to wipe out a rumor of a newborn king. So the political system's a mess. Their leaders, their spiritual leaders are profoundly not what they ought to be. Jesus will have his harshest words for the spiritual leaders of Israel as they bind up burdens on the backs of other people that they themselves are not willing to carry. Jesus says you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. So nothing's the way it's supposed to be in Israel. And yet this godly couple you know is trusting the Lord. They're praying for God to rescue his people, to send the long-awaited Messiah. But they're not just a godly couple, they're a grieving couple. Verse 7, they had no child. That's a profound statement. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The burden of barrenness, something that some of you know. It's it's hard enough simply because God gives a desire to have a child, to have a child to care for, to love and to raise. But the burden of barrenness is doubly difficult if you are a believer. Because you know things. You know that God is sovereign over everything, that, that the barrenness is not an accident. And you believe that God is a giver of life. And so you, you wonder, why doesn't he give you life? He's sovereign over the womb. Why doesn't he open the womb? He delights in children. Why wouldn't he give you one? And then you see, the, the temptation is to believe that it's because he's upset with you or because somehow you've, you've, you've failed in some significant way. That's what Zachariah and Elizabeth's neighbors would have assumed. It's a wonderful old couple, but something's not right. In, maybe in their past, maybe even their parents before them, but God is responding clearly in judgment. He's punishing them. And this would be a great burden for this Jewish couple particularly because the Jewish faith was profoundly a covenantal faith. I think we fail to see that so often as modern Americans. American religion, American spirituality, and even American Christianity is intensely personal and private. It's individual. It's about your relationship with Jesus. Now, we want to acknowledge that it's all, the faith is all those things. It has to be personal. It is in some sense private, right? What, I think it was Tozer says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing else. And yet it is not only that. Jewish faith was communal and covenantal. It was about being part of God's covenant community and being part of God's redemptive work in human history through the generations. God was never just my God, but a God to me and to my children after me by God's own self-revelation. 
Israel's God was not just a God for their own person, but a God for their whole family, a God particularly for their children to come after them. But what if, what if there were no children after you? That's why people assume that this was judgment, because childbearing in the Old Testament, is a critical evidence of the favor of God. And so you have texts like Deuteronomy chapter 7, 13. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. Look at that. Love you and bless you. And what does blessing mean? He will increase your numbers. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. Now, how do you read that as a priest? And then go home and explain that to your wife when you're without children. And they've borne this, of course, all their life, year after year after year. At the beginning, I'm sure that they had prayed and there had always been hope. God was Lord of the womb. He might still open that womb and yet now they were well along in years. And so that door is closed. That chapter is done. The page has been turned. There is no more undoing what time and divine providence have decreed. At least that's what they thought. That's what they were convinced of. And then God spoke. A glorious announcement, verses 8 through 11. We see the occasion... uh, Zechariah is called to serve, do his uh, term of duty as a priest. You see, what what King David had done is he he had divided up the whole Levitical priesthood into 24 divisions. And so each division was called upon twice a year to serve at the temple. And so during the rest of the year, they could be home and on their uh, farms, whatever. But twice a year, they would go to Jerusalem, to the temple, and uh, with their division and perform all the duties necessary there. And on this particular day, um, Zechariah has been chosen by Lot to do one of the most significant things a priest uh, could do. And that is to offer up the, the prayer of incense. To, to, um, what, what, what would happen, of course, is that uh, there would be coals taken from the altar out in the courtyard and brought into the holy place, not the most holy place, but into the holy place. You'd have the, the bread the table of bread there, you would have the lamp stand there. And then right in front of the holy, the most holy place is the altar for incense. And the coals from the altar outside where a, an animal has been sacrificed, those coals would be brought in and placed in a, in a bowl. And then at the right time, uh, the priest who's been chosen by Lot would go in and he would pour incense onto those hot coals and a cloud of sweet-smelling incense would, would arise before God, symbolizing the prayers of the people. This was such a holy act that you were only allowed to do it once in your lifetime. So this is Zechariah's one and only opportunity to perform this holy act for on behalf of God's people as he goes in at the appropriate hour and at the, at the appropriate time, pours uh, the, the incense over the coals. The people are outside praying. They see the cloud ascend and, uh, and the prayers of Israel ascending in, the, in that cloud of incense. And then uh, the priest who had performed the duty would step out of the temple, out of the holy place, and the people would be gathered there, and he would pronounce the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you. 
and keep you. The prayers have, have arisen. God has heard, and God is responding now in the benediction as He blesses you, those who've gathered to worship. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And everything was going well. Zechariah was in the holy place. There's the, the holy instruments in the, in the temple, the table, the, the lampstand. There's the altar of incense, and he pours the incense, and then everything goes off the track in a sense. This was not in the worship manual. Uh, an angel appears. Now, boys and girls, uh, we read that Zachariah was terrified. You might be a little uh, confused by that because angels, we all recognize, are good beings, right? Angels are they're beautiful. Angels are um, without sin, so why would Zechariah be terrified, boys and girls? Well, there's a difference between angels in theory and angels in person. It's sort of like, um, boys and girls, if, if, uh, I, bet, I bet most of you like dogs. If you don't like dogs, oh, something's wrong. But if, uh, <laughs> everybody likes dogs, okay? We like, and yet there's a difference between dogs in theory and dogs in person. Now, when I was a little guy, um, our cousins had a huge, uh, I think it was a mix between a German shepherd and a Malamute. It was huge, pure white, crystal blue eyes, very red mouth, and, and it's just a huge animal. I liked dogs. We had a nice dog. And this, this other dog terrified me uh, because just the presence, these dogs killed deer and would drag them home. So when Zechariah is in the temple, in, the, in this holy place, he believes in angels. He believes angels are good. He likes angels. And then there's a living being from God in the room with him. It's a different deal. He's terrified. He's terrified, rightly so. And yet this angel is so gracious and speaks the most amazing message. He says, I'm Gabriel, sent from God. Promises your wife, Elizabeth, first says, don't be terrified. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. That's an amazing announcement. You're going to have a baby. And he goes on, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. This is the best day in Zechariah's life. Not only does he have the incredible honor of serving in this special way in the temple, but God is appearing to him in this angel to assure him their prayers have been heard. And God is going to act. God is going to move and give them exactly what they've been praying for, a baby. And not only that, it gets better. This child, the angel assures him, will be great before the Lord, full of the Holy Spirit, set aside to a particular task. And the task that the angel announces for John just had to make Zachariah's jaw drop. Because the angel quotes from the prophet Malachi, where Malachi said, someone is going to come, a forerunner, he's going to be like Elijah, 
And he's going to make ready a way for the Lord. He's going to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's going to be a spiritual revival um, in Israel so that a, there is a people prepared to meet their God. So when the, innate, when the angel quotes from the prophet Malachi, Zechariah knows exactly what this is about. That God is on the move. Not only are they going to have a baby, but the Messiah himself is about to come. And his boy, John, is going to be the fulfillment of God's promise in Malachi. His boy, John, is going to be the forerunner, the one who heralds and announces the coming of the Messiah. This is, this is uh, it's just winning the lottery of grace. This is, this is the year of Jubilee and the exodus out of Egypt and every other good thing that happened in the history of Israel all wrapped up into one for Zechariah. This is overwhelming, unbelievably good news. And he absolutely fumbles it. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. In other words, Gabriel, have you been paying attention? Do you see how old I am? Do you understand how old Elizabeth is? Do you realize we haven't had children all these years? Do you understand that it's not possible for an old man and an old barren woman to have children anymore, Gabriel? No, you're an angel. But that's how things work here on planet Earth. Now, he doesn't say all that. But that's the message. It just, the news is too good. Can't be true. The circumstances that he sees, that he knows, that he experiences, has experienced, those circumstances trump whatever Gabriel had to say. So his biology is correct. His theology is awful. Gabriel is not amused. He's baffled at this response. Uh, What part of what I just said don't you understand? The angel answered, I am Gabriel. Wouldn't you love to have been there? (laughs) You know, it's like, hello. I'm an angel. I stand in the presence of God. So Zechariah worked this through. Do you think that I've come from the presence of God to spin a tale for you? I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent by God to speak to you and tell you this good news from God. That's what Gabriel says. In the face of Zechariah's doubt stands Gabriel's towering conviction. He cannot, in some sense, believe Zechariah's unbelief. And so he rebukes him and pronounces a just sentence on Zechariah's unbelief. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Now, that might seem a bit harsh. Remember, 
God has not spoken to any Israelite for over 400 years. 400 years. There's been silence. So when this angel opens his mouth, he is breaking a 400-year period of silence. So we, we, we might think that Zechariah has a reason for asking questions. Beyond the fact, Zechariah is old. And he's been praying for this a long time. And it's got to be scary for Zechariah to, to believe that, that, that what they had so longed for could possibly now happen. Their heart has been broken so many times. Do you dare trust again? From a human perspective, we would look at that and we would give Zechariah all sorts of room here. But the angel doesn't. <clears throat> Why not? Because God had spoken. And so Zechariah, in doubting the word of God, is doubting the character of God. He's doubting the character of God. Last Sunday night, uh, Andrew Vandermoss was preaching and, and just reminded um, about John Owen. And Owen said one of the most grievous things that you can do to the Father is doubt His love. When He's done everything that he, that he has done to assure you of His love for you, one of the most grievous things you can do is doubt His love. In a similar way, one of, the, one of the most awful sins that we commit is the sin of unbelief. When God speaks and we say, well, how can we know this? Lord, do you see the circumstances of my life? How, what, what evidence are you willing to, to, to give after God has spoken? J.C. Ryle says, we see in this passage how exceedingly sinful it is, is the sin of unbelief in the sight of God. Few sins appear to be so peculiarly provoking to God as the sin of unbelief. None, certainly, have called down such heavy judgments on men. It is a practical denial of God's almighty power to doubt whether he can or will do a thing when he has undertaken to do it. It is giving the lie to God to doubt whether he means to do a thing when he has plainly promised that it shall be done. And so Zechariah is judged for his sin of unbelief. Now again, we can understand that it's hard for Zechariah. I think it's one of the hardest things to do is to receive messages of, of such overwhelming grace and love, to really believe that God is, is as astonishingly good as he is. It's a hard thing. You see, Zachariah is able to believe in a God who is holy. He understands that. He's able to believe in a God who is sovereign. He's even able to accept a God who closes a womb without giving any reasons. God is sovereign. He can accept that. But he struggles to believe that God, a God can be so amazingly good, so incredibly gracious as the God that he has just met. And for many of you, it's the same. We're convinced he's holy. We know he's holy. We believe he's sovereign. We believe that he ordains everything. But the thing that we wrestle with is whether or not he could be as good as the pages of Scripture seem to say, that he could actually forgive us everything, that he'd be willing to pour out love and grace all the time. 
and that his love will never be taken away and that we can actually rely upon it. You see, it's, it's, it's believing this that's difficult, but though it, it is difficult, it doesn't excuse unbelief. God had said it. He had spoken it. And Zechariah was called then to believe it. He should have believed it. And the judgment that the angel gives, interestingly, is that because Zechariah refused to believe the goodness of God, he was not allowed to pronounce the goodness of God. What was he supposed to do after he had poured out the incense? He was supposed to go and stand in front of the congregation and assure them of the goodness of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's what he was supposed to do. And the angel says, you're not going to do it. David Gooding writes this, A priest who cannot believe the authoritative word of an angel of God because he cannot accept the possibility of divine intervention to reverse the decay of nature has lost faith in the basic principle of redemption. Let me read that one more time. A priest who cannot believe in the authoritative word of an angel of God because he cannot accept the possibility of divine intervention to reverse the decay of nature, has lost faith in the basic principle of redemption. Without redemption, he has no gospel. Without a gospel, any blessing he pronounced upon the people would be the emptiest of professional formalities. If Zechariah could not believe the angel's gospel, it were better that he did not pretend to bless the people. Fittingly, the angel struck him dumb. That's exactly right. Because he would not believe the good news that God had spoken to him, he was not going to be able to pronounce the good news that God had spoken to his people. Not until it had come true. And so he finished his tour of duty that week. He went home, a silent man, tried somehow to explain to Elizabeth what had happened. And then according to the word of God, she became pregnant. Verse 24, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Can you imagine the joy of this old woman? How do we apply this as we wrap up? Let me just give you a couple things to think about. One is Luke 1 teaches us to have a proper view of God in the midst of hard providences. To have a proper view of God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because what we're tempted to do when it's hard, when the marriage is really painful, when children are, are, are wandering, when work is falling apart, when your health is deteriorating, whatever the trials that you might be facing, it's, it's tempting to question the love of God for us or his concern for us or to maybe think that God is punishing us and, 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 we, and we're willing to be shown. Lord, just show me what I'm doing wrong. I'll get it right. I'll make it right. Just, just tell me what I'm doing wrong. And, and undoubtedly, this, this old, beautiful couple had wrestled with that, had asked those questions. But you see, the truth is they didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't because of sin. God wasn't responding because of a failure on their part. They were righteous. They were blameless. The barrenness was not punishment at all. It was God preparing them for a deeper joy and greater honor than they could have ever imagined. They never asked for this. God was about 
something bigger, something grander, something more glorious than their human minds had conceived. And friends, we have the promise of Scripture that God is doing exactly the same thing in our suffering, that God is preparing us for a deeper joy and a greater honor and a richer blessedness than our minds have ever conceived. We never imagined what God was actually about. And even when we don't believe, God is still about it. Isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful that the angel didn't say, Zachariah, because you refuse to believe, no blessing for you. I take it all back. We'll go find someone who is willing to believe. That doesn't happen. Everything the angel promised happens, every bit of it. They had a... They became pregnant, they had a baby, and they named him John. And John was filled with the Holy Spirit, became great before the Lord, and did everything the angel said was going to happen. Isn't it wonderful to know that even when we don't believe, even when we falter and stumble, just like this old man, Zechariah, that God doesn't remove the promises. He doesn't take away the blessings. Because you see, the, the foundation of the blessings, the foundation of the promises, were ne- it was never going to be found in you. It's always rooted in the faithfulness, the steadfast love of God. It was always rooted there. That's why the ice goes all the way down. Because it's rooted, all the word of God, all the promises of God to you, the incredible things, the things that you don't even imagine can possibly be true. All of it actually is true. Because God has promised it and he has rooted it in his own sovereign faithfulness and goodness and grace and love. And what he asks us to do is believe. Believe, because you see, he promised a son, and the son came. And everything that the Old Testament said that son would accomplish, he accomplished greater even than the old prophets could have imagined. And we need to fight then against our tendency to read our life in terms of the circumstances instead of reading our life according to the terms of God's word and God's acts and God's promise and God's power and God's persistent, gracious, infallible, unerring, immutable intent to bless you. That's incredible. But we have to believe it. And there's no reason not to. God says that he's promised that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so whatever that that shame and guilt that has gripped you, let it go. Believe the word of God. He has spoken it. He said it. He wants you to believe it. Let it go. He's promised that if you lose things for Christ's sake, if you die to self, you will actually find your life in Jesus Christ. So let it go. Let your life go. Let your idols go. Believe what God has spoken. He's promised that he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. That not a single atom in this universe can move apart from his sovereign will for his glory and your good. And so God calls you to believe it. And to put aside worry and to be done with anxiety, trusting your life, your, your future, your loved ones into the hands of this sovereign God. He's promised that he's coming again. And so let goods and kindred go and this mortal life also. That's what Luther said. The body may they kill, they may kill, but God's truth abides still. Jesus said he's coming back. Let's believe it. Let's believe it in a way that changes how we live. 
Friend, I just want to ask you this morning, where in your life do you need to hear God's voice, receive God's word, receive his assurance of his grace and kindness and love to you, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ? Where do you need to receive that in your life and then believe it? All the way down. All the way down. And then let me wrap this up. God kept Zechariah from speaking the good news because of his unbelief. What's keeping you? What's keeping you and me? Is it our unbelief? Is that why we're afraid to talk to our neighbors? If you knew that Jesus was coming back at 2 o'clock this afternoon, that the world was going to wrap up 2 o'clock this afternoon, is there any people you'd like to talk to about that? There's some I'd like to talk to. He's coming back. And it's good news. The the message that we have to share is such good news that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. And he's given us Jesus. He gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And we have the message to share. But we need to believe it. Friend, why don't you commit yourself to sharing the good news of the gospel this Christmas season. Share it with your family. Remind your spouse when, when she's struggling with, with doubt or fear or sin. Remind her of the gospel. Remind your husband. Remind your good friend. Remind strangers. Remind your children. Speak the good news of God for sinners into the life of all the sinners around you, and you can start with yourself, and speak it with absolute certainty it's true. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, you've spoken to us this morning as certainly as the angel spoke to Zechariah. And our unbelief is not okay. And so we confess it. Oh, God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, maybe there are some here this morning who don't believe. They have a form of religion, but they don't understand any of its power because they've never confessed and repented, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that Every, every person here this morning would consider their own heart and just, just know, Lord, that we, we've come to Jesus by the faith that you give. And, Lord God, if, if, if there's some here this morning who've not done that, may this be the day where they come to Jesus and find him to be life. Oh, God, give your converting grace to us. And Father, for all of us, that we would to hear your goodness, your intent, your commitment to bless us in Jesus with all good things. I pray that we could take that truth against all our fears and doubts and worries, our anxiety. We could speak the truth of God and then move into our week, skating with confidence, with joy, with pleasure, because your truth goes all the way down. Oh, Father, bless this word to us. May it bear great fruit for your name's sake. Amen. Let's respond to the word this morning.